Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The faculty of the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences are presenting a panel discussion titled Election 2016, Opportunities and Challenges for a New Era. That's happening tomorrow, February 1st, 4 p.m., Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101. And they're hoping for a lively panel discussion with faculty members from throughout the college, including from Journalism and Communication, Languages, Philosophy and Communication Study, um, Political Science, and uh, History. And uh, it's fair to say, I, I think we could we could predict a lively discussion, hopefully here as well. And we are including you on the panel. I want to know what you think as we uh, go along here, and you can direct this discussion. Uh, election 2016 opportunities and challenges for a uh, new era is uh, the topic, and we welcome in uh, Lawrence uh, Culver from USU History Department. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. And uh, welcome back, Jason Gilmore from Languages, Philosophy, and Communication Study. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, for joining us. Uh, let me start with you, uh, Jason Gilmore, um, just uh, on this topic, and I'm sure we'll get more specific and stray from this as we go along here and, and probably tomorrow in the panel discussion, but specifically to this uh, topic, Election 2016, Opportunities and Challenges for a New Era, what would you say? Um, so I think... We were talking a little bit before the show, and I think one of the things that uh, the panel is probably going to take on is that uh, we'll speak a little bit about election 2016, uh, but now it's time to talk about what what are kind of the important issues moving forward. And I think it's important that we're taking that perspective, not only from an academic point of view, but that we're trying to draw in uh, community to the conversation as well. Uh, because it really isn't just about an academic conversation, right? In fact, perhaps that's one of the lessons of election 2016 is when we have too uh, intellectualized of a conversation, a lot of people get lost from that conversation, right? Uh, so I think what we're going to try and do is is take the academic point of view, but also bring in kind of what is it, what are the concerns that all of us have uh, in this kind of new administration and new paradigm uh, moving forward? Lawrence Culver, just in general, your your response to that to that title. Oh well, I think um, uh, uh, just to follow up on what Jason said, it's very important that we try to have as broad a discussion as possible, and that I think one of the the hallmarks of the recent past has been the splintering of uh, the media into all these these bubbles, uh, left and right, and everything in between. Um, and that it is so easy in social media to to ensconce ourselves within like-minded people that we it's not so much we even disagree with people different from us we don't even know what they're thinking and aren't even thinking about their opinions mm-hmm. uh, and so I think any opportunity to bring faculty across disciplines together to bring students and the community together to talk uh, is a great opportunity. Jason uh, Gilmore, uh, we are the elite, are we not? You know, a, a university community is by definition the elite, and this was framed at least by Mr. Trump as as the. I think he, I think he he spoke truth when he admitted he sort of stumbled into this movement, mm-hmm. but he did stumble into a movement and became the leader of a, of a movement, a populist movement, and and one of the elements over time of a populist movement is this anti-elite. Sure. So for the elite, and we're just talking to ourselves, what good does that do? Uh, so this is a this is and maybe we'll take the whole hour to talk about this because this is a pretty uh, a pretty depth in depth topic um, that we are the elite that we have these intellectualized conversations. I mean that's our job, right? Is we are fact 
and evidence-based uh, uh, individuals. We were not interested in um, at least not basing conclusions off of wild conspiracy theories, fake news, um, that we as individuals are attempting to get to uh, a kind of middle ground uh, and an evidence-based uh, uh, decision on things. But just in talking like that, I realize how over-intellectualized my perspective is on things. So indeed, we do bring a, an elite perspective on things. Uh, and so the question is, is uh, in not only academia where this elite discourse is happening, but in mainstream media, right? I think the over-intellectualization uh, and the anti-intellectual sentiment is why, or the over-intellectualization of media sources, CNN, right? They dive into things and pick it apart, not at a guttural level, not at how I feel about these things, but they dive into the details about things. But that's problematic because most Americans aren't convinced via their head. They're convinced first via their gut. Mm -hmm. And I heard, I think it was, I can't remember who it was on, on, on television the other day, said, um, if you can't, uh, if you're trying to convince me through my head, you can't give me enough, or you can't give me enough uh, details. But if you've convinced me through my gut, I can't, I can't take enough. Like, you can't give me enough. I would love to know more about it. But if you can't convince, if you can't convince me in my gut, uh, then I'm not going to open up to you. And I think Donald Trump, although I think we overestimate his supporter base uh, at times, but the connection that he's had with his uh, with his base has been at a guttural level. Mm -hmm. It's not about let's pick this apart and look at what the evidence suggests. In fact, he sometimes suggests his own kind of uh, uncollaborated uh, or uncorroborated evidence. Um, but uh, it's about kind of this guttural level. It's about appealing to people with short phrases like make America great again, right? It's not about over-complexifying things, uh, as we do at times in academia. And I think perhaps that's something we'll tackle tomorrow in the, mm -hmm. in the panel, is how can we look at this both at an academic uh, evidence-based level mm -hmm. as well as at uh, a level that actually appeals to people? Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm a communication scholar, so I'm always kind of thinking about how is it that people are decoding these messages? How are they interpreting these messages? Uh, and we can get more into that. But. So uh, before I turn to Lawrence Culvert, uh, a follow-up. So do Democrats need to get better at marketing their message? Is that, is that what we're talking about? Do Democrats need to get better at? Uh, I would say yes. Democrats probably need to get better at everything, but uh, I would say yes. Um, they definitely need to understand uh, that their tendency is to have that intellectual conversation. But if we take like the carrier deal, do you remember the carrier mm -hmm. deal from a few weeks ago? So the carrier deal was this thing where uh, Donald Trump supposedly saved a, a thousand jobs that were going to be exported abroad. And what does mainstream media do? They go, well, let's delve into the details. Let's see if there's actually a thousand people that are actually going to be saved. And actually, after all the facts come in, it's actually 700. But at the same time, they're still exporting all these things. They've got all these details, right? They've delved into and they've done their job. And then they look up and their audience is gone. It's the audience just can't handle this over intellectualization of every single issue. And so I watch CNN, and I watch them intellectualize absolutely everything. But I also sit there realizing that it's people like me who are watching this. 
the Trump supporters aren't sitting there hour after hour looking at an intellectual conversation. They want something guttural, and they want something that that's meaningful to them. It's not that Make America Great Again wasn't meaningful. It was a meaningful phrase. We could, as intellectuals, say, what does it mean? And great, again, what does again mean? And again, we lose that audience when we do that. And so over the last few days, I think one of the strategic communication pieces of the Democratic Party that has worked is to not call this this recent ban uh, an uh, uh, an immigration ban, uh, a visa ban, or whatever it is that the administration wants to put forward, but to outright call it a Muslim ban, right? And that's a that's strategic. They're saying that for a reason because they know that that affects people, right? That the idea of discriminating against people via their religion uh, is something that most Americans don't agree with, right? So it's these choice of words. So I would say at, at certain points in time, they are getting better at their... Uh, their appeals, and sometimes they're not. Mm-hmm. And it's those times when they 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 have that at length conversation in public view mm-hmm. that they lose a lot of their audience. Mm-hmm. Lawrence Culver, anything you want to add to that? And then I I want to uh, talk about historical parallels since we have a historical. Oh parallel. well, sure thing. I mean, I think uh, um, Jason's point is very well made that uh, academics, in particular, tend to analyze everything and try to understand its complexity and for the average person who is listening to the radio on the way home from work uh that's not what they're doing and so a simple uh message no matter how basic is what they want and it's easy to understand it's easy to remember there's no complexity there's no nuance um and and that politically speaking is effective the one i would disagree a little bit in the sense that a lot of what is on cnn i would not call intellectualized <laughs> discourse i mean people yelling political talking points at each other sure is not really even discourse if you want to call it that uh so i think that's one of the problems is that the the media has has and it's not just cnn or fox or msnbc or whoever you want to pick that does this they'll put dueling heads up who basically just throw stuff against the wall but sure. there's no actual analysis or investigative reporting going on as part of that. I want to uh, talk a bit about Lawrence Culver about the historical parallels. We're, we're all trying to, you know, that's uh, something that, uh, that history can give us, uh, a parallel that can help us to frame uh, at least our thinking about it because we're, we're in a fairly chaotic time. W- one that I've been thinking about is uh, the transition from Woodrow Wilson to Warren G. Harding. Uh, Woodrow Wilson's intellectual, mm-hmm. President Obama intellectual, mm-hmm. uh, Warren G. Harding, for wh- whatever his other gifts, probably n- wouldn't describe as intellectual. Uh, his, his slogan was, let's get back to normal, back to normalcy. Well, back to normalcy after a long period of of world war and massive political reform and a very activist federal agenda under under Wilson and the previous President Roosevelt. Um uh, you know, so I think people did want to get back to normalcy, even though, as the people will point out, normalcy is not actually a word, but whatever. Um, uh, Harding also perhaps may be useful in the sense that he uh, presided over, although he was largely oblivious to, the what is perhaps the single most corrupt administration in all of American history, which is quite an achievement. Um, it was really spectacular, and that's even before you bring in all his uh, personal peccadilloes mm-hmm. that were not financial in nature. But I think something historians often say is, is it's not so much that history repeats itself, but sometimes it rhymes. Mm. And there are these moments you can look back on 
and and see echoes of present events. And so I, I just briefly, there are two presidents that tend to get brought up most often, but I'll bring up a third uh, moment that I think in some ways is more instructive. So the one people have been talking about a lot is Barry Goldwater. Barry Goldwater leads this insurgent movement within the Republican Party, gets the nomination in, in 1964 and goes down to spectacular defeat. Well, he, you know, Trump and his followers are insurgents in some way. They do represent a faction of the Republican Party. But Barry Goldwater was a sitting senator. He was a man of government and of the Republican Party. He was used to using the machinery of government to get funding for his state of Arizona. So he came out of that political world. If you go way back to early American history, another comparison people make, including some of Trump's closest advisors, is Andrew Jackson. Uh, Temperamentally, maybe, in the sense of Andrew Jackson was somewhat very much, someone who was very much just my way or the highway. I know what's best. I know what's right. And everybody else, get out of my way. I'm going to do it. Um, But we have yet to see how Trump's policies will actually play out. If he gets himself into a constitutional crisis with the court system, for example, then maybe this will look like Andrew Jackson in a very negative way when Andrew Jackson forced the removal of the Cherokee Indians from the southeast and the Supreme Court ruled that they had every right to stay there, that the land was theirs. And when confronted with that and told that they had ruled against him, Jackson said, well, that's fine. Let's see them enforce it. Mm-hmm. You know, I control the military. I can do what I want. Uh, but the, the problem with that parallel is that America in 1828 was a wildly different country. Um, and Jackson did represent popular white opinion, which was totally in favor of westward expansion, Indian removal, and genocide, frankly, and slavery. Um, We don't live in that country anymore. We live in a much more diverse country with a much larger political system in terms of who's represented within it. One other comparison, uh, to to be quick, um, uh, that I think might be more relevant but is less well-known is the election of 1896. In 1896, you have William McKinley representing the Republican Party, the establishment Republican Party of Wall Street, of the Northeast, of financial interests. The Democratic Party historically had had represented mainly Southerners, farmers, rural people. Uh, In 1896, you have just, you're sort of at the tail end of what we now call the Gilded Age, this era of, on the one hand, massive government corruption, uh, and the rise of the corporation as a legal entity, the rise of all these monopolies monopolizing the steel industry and railroads and copper and coal and oil and everything else. Um, and so these two parties disagreed a lot. One urban, educated, one rural, less educated. Uh, and then this guy, William Jennings Bryan, who was kind of a Democrat but was really what we'd call a populist from a third-party this agrarian party arguing for all sorts of agrarian reform. He takes over the Democratic nomination. The populists essentially take over the Democratic Party. Uh, They go down to defeat. They're defeated by William McKinley, who in some ways runs the first really modern political campaign, as we would think of it. Um, And yet, even though these two parties seem so wildly different, when you actually scratch the surface, they're a little less different. Percolating up within the Republican Party was what the movement that we now remember as the progressives that would take power when McKinley's assassinated and his vice president, Teddy Roosevelt, becomes president, who had been placed in that position to get rid of him, to put him somewhere powerless. Uh, And in the case of the Democrats, 
uh, and the populists, even though the populists and the progressives were wildly different in all sorts of ways, you could go to a rally for either of those groups of people and start trashing, for example, the gold standard and monopolies and all these things were seemed to favor big business that the masses didn't like. The way they expressed that dislike took very divergent political forms. But if you look at a Trump rally versus a Bernie Sanders rally, you could go to either of those and talk about how awful NAFTA was and get cheered. So these underlying discontents that actually are roiling both parties, and, and we have yet to see how this is going to play out in the long term. Mm. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have more with uh, Lawrence Culver from the USU History Department and uh, Jason Gilmore from Languages, Philosophy, and Communication Study. They're participating in a panel discussion uh, put on by the faculty of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. That's happening tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, at 4 p.m. in the uh, Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101. And uh, we have uh, two of the panelists with us uh, today, and we hope to hear from you. I'm opening the phone lines now, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com is the email, upraxcess at gmail.com. When we come back, I want to uh, talk about... Uh, whether or not our panelists think uh, we may be heading for a testing of uh, uh, kind of a constitutional tug-of-war between the branches of uh, government. And we have historical precedent for uh, President Jackson uh, saying to the Supreme Court, um, I'm so sorry, I'm not going to follow your your ruling. Uh, what I want to talk about is the uh, nomination that's coming up tonight. Uh, President Trump is going to announce his uh, his nominee for the Supreme Court, and this after almost a year-long um, adventure where uh, um, Judge Merrick Garland has been sort of hanging in the wind. And I also want to talk about alternative facts um, and uh, Steve Bannon's, President Shabajo Steve Bannon's characterization of the mainstream press as the opposition party. Um, that takes us into some very interesting territory. We'll talk about those two things and uh, perhaps whatever you would like to talk about as we go forward uh, post-election 2016. What are your thoughts? 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing information, events, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. President Trump wants to build pipelines with Pipe Made in America, but one manufacturer says that might be easier said than done. The problem is we are almost 100% reliant upon imported steel slabs, so we bring the slab in through the port of Los Angeles. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are uh, looking ahead uh, to what's going to be happening. Uh, given the results of the election 2016, we've been having some of these discussions here on Access Utah. We're continuing that today, and we're turning to two of the panelists uh, who will be uh, presenting a discussion to the title, Election 2016, Opportunities and Challenges for a New Era. That's happening uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, at the Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101, presented by the faculty of 
College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And so faculty members uh, from Journalism and Communication, Languages, Philosophy, and Communication Study, uh, also from Political Science and History. We have Lawrence Culver from the History Department and uh, Jason Gilmore from Languages, Philosophy, and Communication Study. And uh, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, what are your thoughts on anything that we've uh, been discussing today? By the way, we're going to be discussing uh, President uh, Trump's executive order on immigration and, uh, and the status of refugees mm-hmm. uh, tomorrow. Uh, we could uh, preview that discussion today if you have uh, thoughts. Anything that you'd like to talk about, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com is our email, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Jason Gilmore, I wonder you you uh, you're in communication studies. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this this phrase of Kellyanne Conway's has gone viral now. Uh, alternative facts. Yeah. Um, Steve Bannon recently uh, characterized, I'd, uh, hopefully a bit tongue in cheek and a bit uh, uh, as a provocateur. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Steve Bannon characterized the. Uh, it sounded like uh, uh, all of the press, except for Fox News, Fox News, as the opposition party. And Breitbart. And Breitbart. Yeah, definitely not Breitbart. Yeah. They're, uh, they're an upstanding news organization. Uh, yeah, in in his him. mind, in his mind. So yeah. uh, what do you think? Is is this just one of those provocations that uh, where he hopes to get a response? Well, obviously he wants to get a response. Sure. Um, but I, I don't know. There might be a, a bit of a truth to that, right? The Democratic Party is in disarray. Mm-hmm. And uh, in his mind, at least, and probably President Trump's, uh, this is the opposition, the press, sure. which can have some dangerous ramifications if you think about it that way. Yeah. So there are two pieces in there, right? The idea of alternative facts and the idea of the press or mainstream press being uh, the opposition party. Uh, so let me start with the idea of alternative facts. Um, I think, well, actually, let me start with both of them by saying that uh, these are generally problematic on the level of Uh, the functionality of a democracy um, in that an administration would actively present not alternative facts but provable falsehoods uh, to the American uh, public um, is indicative of strategic, um, I don't want to call it lying, but strategic manipulation uh, of the American people. Right, to say that it doesn't matter what the facts actually are, as long as I say it um, and the people around me reinforce it and Fox News is probably going to pick this up and Breitbart for sure, um, then that's a problematic thing if we're fusing into the American public provable falsehoods. Um, so I think that's that number one, the idea that the administration, um, even though uh, Spicer, the uh, communications uh guy, I can't remember his, his uh, title on me right now, uh, said that we're going to give you the truth at all turns, right? And then turn around and immediately give uh, provable falsehoods. That's a problematic thing, not only on the level of, hey, is our administration doing what it's supposed to, but is it actually truthful to me? And then that goes into the idea that the people who are taking up those provable falsehoods and and pointing at them and saying that's not true, that's a falsehood, uh, are the mainstream media, right? And so they are, I think, probably better than uh, many times in our history attempting to play that watchdog role, right? They're trying to say we need to keep... 
uh, tabs on this administration that when they lie, we're going to call them on it, that they are attempting as best as they can right now uh, to be that watchdog, right? And they're still playing with the need for uh, ratings. But right now, anything that they say that has to do with Trump gives them ratings, right? Um, so right now, they're actually attempting to play that role at the same time that they're being accused of playing the opposite role. It's, 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 it's a fascinating time in our uh, democracy when, um, when the fourth estate, a, a component of our democracy that we've, we've uh, depended on, is fallible, is problematic. It has, it has biased news in there for sure. But there are actual journalists who, who dedicate themselves on a regular basis to uh, policing government, right, to saying we need to represent the people just in case our government doesn't do so. Um, and, and again, when the administration sees that as a threat to their legitimacy, um, at the same time that they are giving out provable falsehoods as if they were facts, um, that's a problematic component to our democracy moving forward. It's a challenge to, uh, the, the, the strength and durability of our democracy moving forward. Lawrence Culver, what what do you think? It's uh, I'm, I've been trying, you know, thinking back to, you know, the press wars, Adams versus Jefferson, for example. But that, but that was two candidates fighting each other. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of other historical parallels, but I, I wonder how worried you are with with this idea of alternative facts, and we can't all agree on the facts. Uh, will we get through this, or is this um, the start of something? more sinister. Well, as has been said before, uh, uh, you were entitled to your opinion. You were not entitled to the facts. Uh, But the problem is, is that uh, if people live in alternate media universes and they don't believe anything that's not from one of their sources, then you're not talking about the facts anymore. Uh, It's certainly true that actually for most of American history, newspapers, for example, were openly partisan. They supported one political party or another. Uh, They allied with one politician or another. Um, And certainly politicians have complained about the press at various points. I mean, Nixon, of course, famously had a a very prickly relationship with the media. Um, But again, I, I think there are two things going on now that are distinctive. One is the ability to literally shut out anything you don't want to hear. We are more connected and more disconnected than we've ever been at the same time. And the other thing is the decline of traditional media. Uh, So newspapers don't have the resources they did 30 years ago to do investigative reporting. And I think one of the things you're going to see at that, not so much at the national level, where you're still going to have the New York Times and other papers like that, but the vast spectacle of corruption that awaits us at the local and state level when, when the regional newspapers fold, one can only imagine what local politicians are going to get away with at that point. Let me uh, go to this email from Steve. Uh, he is uh, he's, uh, pushing back, Jason, against your characterization of uh, CNN as uh, over-intellectualizing. Uh, so, uh, here's what Steve says. Knock me over with a feather. I can hardly believe my ears. CNN over-intellectualized? Two question marks. Never heard that critique before, and I'm frankly astonished. The usual analysis and an obvious reality that seems patently uh, apparent to me is exactly the opposite of this critique. CNN does not over-intellectualize. It dumbs down. CNN serves up a porridge of sens- sensationalistic quote-unquote journalism and uninformed shouting heads who know little about their topics but are entertaining in a 
reality show kind of way and are far cheaper than building a real journalistic organization and, and with professionals, foreign bureaus, and all that other expensive stuff that real journalism requires. Even CNN's own management has uh, copped this reality, uh, but it's just fine with them because profits have gone through the roof. Cognitive linguist uh, George Lakoff uh, offers a far better critique. Issues need to be thoughtfully framed, not dumbed down even further than they already are, if that's even possible. Uh, that's Steve. So thanks for, thanks for that, Steve. Uh, what do you say, Jason? Well, it sounds like his uh, opinion of CNN is not high. Um, what I would say is that I'm not making the argument that uh, CNN is the top uh, over-intellectualizers, right? Um, I was just giving them as an example of mainstream media that, that chew on and chew on and chew on and pull over and turn and look at this side and that side of the facts and over-analyze, right? Um, but I would say that at the same time, they do have uh, in, intelligent individuals who were formerly in government on there having intellectual conversations. Um, and what it comes down to is not necessarily the point of whether CNN is the top intellectual or over-intellectualized space. Uh, you know, the Washington Posts and New York Times and, you know, if you watch the, the Washington Week on PBS, right, that, those are the places where we're really digging into kind of the, the academic side of things. Um, that said... CNN is not Fox News, right? CNN is, is one of those spaces where where they're just just overdoing a story and looking at every single angle and side and this and that and what does this mean versus what does that mean? What is, like I said, what does make America great again? What does again mean? Were we great? What does great mean? When are we going to be great? What does great mean? Who does that include? Right? All of that just overanalyzing of things is what turns off a huge portion of our population. And I'm not just, I'm not pointing at Trump supporters, right? My mom is a, kind of one of my pulses on America. She is not a Trump supporter at all, but she can't stand uh, when people just overanalyze things. She can't. Uh, she wants something that she can grab onto that makes her feel good, that makes her feel like she's a part of something meaningful. And she wants to take that forward, right? Those of us, uh, like James, I believe, uh, who are paying a lot of attention to this stuff, um, we want we want to pick this stuff apart, right? Uh, we want to have that intellectual conversation, but most people have two jobs and kids and all this stuff that they. I mean, it's the idea that they just simply don't have time for that uh, for that type of attack on the the facts and the issues and things like that. But I would also say that. Even if they did have time, this is not subject matter that everybody wants to talk about. Mm. Right? I mean, look at your Facebook page and how many people have, if you're a political person, how many people have blocked you. Uh, you can't see that. But guess, if you're an over-political person on Facebook, people don't want to hear it. Right? Is, so people are walking away from not only the subject matter, but that over-intellectualization of, of the issues. Mm. Now, Let's add on to that the fact that that has been a piece, a mainstream piece of rhetoric uh, on the right, is that look at these intellectuals, they're spinning themselves on all these things, and they're losing touch with mainstream America, right? They're overthinking things, and people don't want to don't do that. People want to grab onto something, again, meaningful, and they want to move forward with that. And that was the appeal of Donald Trump. 
right? And he, I mean, he, if you hear him in, uh, there was this one interview where he was talking about when he came up with the phrase, make America great again, as soon as he like pared it down from all this, these words to make America to four words, he was like, brilliant, bring my lawyers in. I need this patented. And then he came up with his next one, which we'll see in four years if he, if he makes it to four years, uh, which is uh, keep America great. He's already got a patent on that one. Right, because he's thinking inside of the space of he knows that people gravitate toward meaningful but chewable, right, digestible, simple phrasing and uh, things that, again, give them meaning. It's not just I'm going to grab onto this and move on. It's I'm going to believe that you've thought all the things that you need to think about behind the meaning of that, but that makes me feel good. Mm. Right. And stronger together, which was if we're going to go into elections, stronger together was was uh, Hillary's phrasing. And that's simplified, but it didn't quite uh, have the resonances. Make America great again. Mm-hmm. Lawrence Goldberg. Just to just to add to that, I mean, I think, you know, Hillary kept putting out position papers and policy papers and all this stuff. Whereas Trump didn't, but that's not what made the news. What would make the news was whatever crazy or infl- or intentionally inflammatory statement Trump would make. Remember how he belittled his vast, you know, field of rivals in the Demo- in the Republican primaries. You know, Little Marco and Lion Ted and all that stuff. Um, and you know, if you want to be really cynical about it, I mean, in some ways, to to quote from P.T. Barnum, even though P.T. Barnum claimed he didn't say it. Mm. You know, nobody ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the American public. Well, maybe you didn't say it. But it's true that people want it fast. They want it easy. They want it simple. Uh, and in some ways, it's sort of surprising retrospect, P.T. Barnum didn't run for president. He actually did go into politics at a local level. Uh, um, so uh, uh, as, as one French uh, observer of the United States in the early 19th century said when the U.S. was obsessed with westward expansion and selling land and speculating on land. Uh, he said the United States was not so much a nation as it was a vast and vastly successful real estate syndicate. Mm. And uh, selling and buying and that sort of freewheeling uh, culture is is central to us. And so I think we, we, mis- un- we underestimate the value of simple slogans and simple answers. Mm-hmm. Following up on that, uh, I think uh, sometimes about Alexander Hamilton's uh, statement that the people is a beast, mm-hmm. and uh, this is why we have constitution. This is why this is why we have the electoral college to mm-hmm. protect against rank populism <laughs> of the, of the kind that uh, the Trump's been successful with. But on the other hand, isn't that patronizing and condescending? Well, uh, yes and no. Democracy is <laughs> better than anything else we've tried. Which is not to say it's perfect by any means. Uh, I mean, if you actually read the Constitution, it is, and I don't mean this in a negative way, it is a profoundly cynical document. It assumes that people are weak, that people are corruptible, that given any power, uh, it will it will weaken their resolve. Any institution, the moment it's created, begins to decay. And our founding fathers were profoundly wary of government power, uh, of the influence of outside forces on government, of factions within government. Uh, and as part of that, they were, they were frankly, vi- quite leery of the average American voter, which, of course, in their era was a much smaller subset of people than our own. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I don't know what you, what's your thoughts on that, on the, this this idea of the, the, the Constitution, mm-hmm. and in fact, you know, uh, classic conservatism views sure. people this way, right? Uh, you know, um, corruptible, mm-hmm. um, it, it's not as favorable a view of humanity as classic liberalism. Well, I think, and perhaps one of the most important parts is that it guards against a single person, mm-hmm. right? Right now, a man, uh, but a single person from having too much power uh, over the, the the United States. And so I study presidential speeches. It's um, um, And so I've spent a, a good amount of time kind of looking at uh, Trump's speeches that he's had uh, since he's been elected. And there are a couple of his, his uh, inauguration speeches, very fascinating to me in, in one regard, in that on the day of his inauguration, he, he equates himself with two things. Number one, he equates himself with the people. I am democracy, right? I am the people. So he's, he's equating himself with the ability to speak for all people. Uh, that is an overreach of power. It's also very Jacksonian. Sure, right? <laughs> um, and then number two, he declares that day, not that day on a regular basis, Inauguration Day, but the inauguration of his presidency as American Patriotism Day. That he's equated himself not only with the people, but he's equated himself with patriotism. Um, so, it's if we're thinking about what were the kind of what we were guarding against in the Constitution and the ideas of democracy, and again, it's a flawed system, right? And not only that, it's a changing system, but it's not a changing system that allows for somebody to overreach on power. Right? And I think that's what a lot of people are concerned about right now is that we're not 10 days in or we're 10 days in now, um, and we're seeing the possibility of a lot of overreaches of power. Mm. Let's take another break. When we come back, uh, we have a uh, couple of emails uh, that have uh, come in, um, and uh, we'll, we'll get to those. We want to hear from you. 800-826-1495 is our toll-free phone number, 800-826-1495. Talking about election 2016, we're previewing a panel discussion that's going to involve um, the uh, faculty members of the uh, College of Humanities and Social Sciences at USU uh, from the various departments. And we have with us uh, two of those uh, panelists uh, for a preview uh, on our air. And uh, we're talking with Lawrence Culver from the History Department and uh, uh, Jason Gilmore from Languages, Philosophy, and Communication Studies. And uh, we're hopefully talking with you. What do you think? We're looking ahead and talking about a a whole grab bag of issues. Uh, It's an interesting time. Um, And uh, what are your thoughts and and feelings on anything that we have discussed? Or perhaps you'd like to take the last segment in a totally different uh, direction. Uh, We have another 15 minutes left in this discussion. 800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. Let me mention that this panel discussion on the topic election 2016 opportunities and challenges for a new era will happen tomorrow february 1st uh wednesday 4 p.m merrill kazir library room 101 promised to be a lively discussion and if you're on the usu campus you're invited to attend you're invited to participate in this discussion as well and uh, we'll talk when we come back i read an interesting uh, article in medium.com just this morning this is uh, jake fuentes um he is saying, among other things, that uh, you can go ahead and march in the protests, but don't come home and just feel good. Um, there are other things to pay attention to, 
Um, another thing he says is pay journalists to watch for the head fake, as he says. He, he thinks that this uh, uh, executive order on immigration and the refugee status is a head fake uh, from a very clever President Trump. And he says the only way you uh, keep, keep the watch on that kind of thing is to pay journalists. So pay for your media outlet. We'll talk about those things and much more when we come back. Remarkable Women is made possible with support from the Center for Women and Gender at Utah State University. We do as much, we eat as much, we want as much. Sojourner Truth. Truth was born into slavery and escaped into freedom. Illiterate, she traveled widely speaking for abolition and women's rights. She counseled free slaves and tried unsuccessfully to get them federal land grants. She will forever be remembered for her Ain't I a Woman speech against gender inequality, delivered at the 1851 Women's Rights Convention. Remarkable Women is made possible with support from the Center for Women and Gender at Utah State University, providing students another perspective of current societal issues. Information at womenandgender.usu.edu. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. The topic is Election 2016, Opportunities and Challenges for a New Era. That's the title of a panel discussion presented by the faculty of the USU College of